You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. I've got a little bit of a show and tell this morning, so I'm going to ask the kids, if you are in the fifth grade or under, come on up here. Let me move this guitar case. Jeremy will say, oh my, I left my case up here. So come on up, guys. Kids, if you're a fifth grader under, come up and hang out in the front row with me here for a second. I brought something I want to talk to you guys about to kind of come hang out right up here. Grab a seat right up here, guys. All right. And we're going to have a little conversation. I needed a panel of experts, and you guys are my experts this morning. Can you serve that purpose? Yeah, just squeeze on in, slide over. Two of you can sit in there, right? You can make that work. Awesome, awesome. So what is this, guys? Okay, not a, true, not a trick question. It's a suitcase. And uh, what, what is a suitcase for? Traveling. I just got back from Baltimore. I spent three days there. I actually didn't use a suitcase because it was a short trip and I just used a backpack. Come on, come on in. You can sit right up in here. Grab a seat, man. We're not going to leave you hanging, Cole. Come on. All right. Right in the middle. There you go. So what's some of the stuff you put in a suitcase? Clothes. Toothbrushes are good. Mom's kind of like for you to brush your teeth. Candy. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. Hair, yeah. Do I put a hairbrush in my suitcase? <laughs> Do I look like a hairbrush kind of guy to you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't have too many hairbrushes in my life anymore. Um, so how many of you have been on an overnight trip where you had to have a bag or a suitcase? How many of you guys? Where are some of the places you went? Connecticut? Boston? I've been to both of those. Long Island, yep, you got to say it right. <laughs> New York City, fantastic. Where did you go recently? Myrtle Beach, all right. Where? Very cool, I can't even pronounce that, so I'm impressed. Great, Jackson. So um, when we think about a suitcase, it's good, for, it's good for traveling, going on a trip, right? What would happen if you didn't take stuff that you need when you're on that trip? Probably die. Well, that's extreme, bro. We need to like have another conversation. You went from like having fun to dying in one step. So what, what would happen if, you, if I you know, didn't pack my suitcase? What would happen? They would definitely not go my way. My teeth, they would probably start going that way. I might have to come back to the dentist. What are some other things that you do or your parents do when you go on a trip to get ready? Just to get ready. What? Make sure you pack. What else? If you're driving, what do they do? Buckle your seat. Watch. Yeah. Now, mom and dad, make sure there's movies in there so you can watch, right? I'll tell you a secret because they just want you to be happy and not make a lot of noise until you get there. That didn't happen. So you put gas in the car, right? Make sure you got some money. Make sure you know where you're going, all that kind of good stuff. So you want to be prepared. GPS, yep. Do you have one of those? Vinny, you have a GPS? I'm impressed. I really am impressed. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you guys and your families, your parents, and everybody else here about how God wants to take us on a trip to be with him. And he wants us to be prepared, all right? So as I share this morning, I want you to think about what it's like to be prepared. And I'll have a couple of other things in here we can talk about along the way, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then you guys can go back to your seats, all right? Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing this morning. I thank you for these kids, for their families. 
They're so wonderful. I pray your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you can go back to your seats. Bye-bye. I'll see you later, Cole. All right, so take your Bible, if you would, guys. Look with me in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to find out this morning that God is preparing us. John, God is preparing us through John the Apostle to be ready for when Jesus comes back. And just like you guys have stuff, I got on a plane Wednesday morning and I made sure I was packed, had all my stuff. There was a training conference I was attending in Baltimore. And, and uh, in fact, there was a lot of pre-work I had to do uh, to be ready for that, some things online. And I made sure as I was all ready to go, because when I got there, I didn't want to be caught, you know, either missing my flight or uh, any of those kinds of things. In fact, communication was a little confusing. When I got there, I realized I didn't have a hotel room. So I'm like, oh, I really don't want to be homeless overnight. So God is preparing us to make sure that we are ready when Jesus returns. And to be ready, we're going to look at four or five reasons. The real key issue we're going to discover is sin in our life. So read with me the first couple of verses here in, in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to come on down through verse 10 in chapter 3. But read with me. The Bible says this, And now, little children, abide in Him. Talking about abiding in God, abiding, living, staying. Live your life in Him. So that when He appears, when Jesus comes back and appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. God wants us to be ready when Jesus comes back. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So the first thing that we need to do in being prepared for Jesus' return, the first reason that we need to address this sin issue in our heart is that God wants us to have confidence in our relationship with Him. He wants us to have confidence in Him. I grew up with an Irish setter. My, my dad had an Irish setter. He was a dog lover, and that kind of transferred to me. Once our kids were old enough and, uh, and I could handle a dog, we went out and, and got a dog. But my, my, uh, our dog was named Penny. She was a great dog, and he trained her really well. She, in fact, if he said come, she'd come. If he said stay, she'd stay. And in fact, if people came over and she was being a little bit obnoxious, she had this little carpet square, and he'd say, Penny, place. And she'd just go right to the place. She was, she was more obedient than I was when I was a kid. You know, wouldn't it be great if all of our kids were, you know, that obedient? But uh, he trained her actually to, to hunt quail. We would hunt quail on the weekends when I was a kid, and uh, she would point the birds. That uh, wasn't really her strong point. She was actually really good at retrieving, and just, it was amazing. In fact, one time, I thought I was probably, I don't know, fifth, sixth, maybe seventh grade, and I thought I had shot a little quail and, uh, and uh, that had gone down in this really big brush pile. A farmer had, in this kind of gully, had pushed probably with a bulldozer, all this brush in there. And, and she went down in and acted like there was something down in there. Her nose was phenomenal. She could just smell anything. And, and came back out, and my dad's like, how sure are you? And I thought, boy, I thought that's where I got one and where it went. He sent her back down in there, and she came back with a bird. And uh, gave it to my dad, and he ends up throwing it in the air, and it flies away. It was an owl. You know, I'm just like, wow. In fact, he, she was so well-trained, she didn't just chew everything up, and the, the owl was probably like, what in the world is this? You know, what, what a bad beginning of your day. And uh, it flew away. So she was unbelievably well-trained, except in one area of her life. We would sometimes come home, 
and she would meet us at the door, and her head would be down, low, ears hanging, eyes down, tail tucked in, slumped over. And whenever she did that, we knew she had gotten into the trash. Trash everywhere. That's not exciting when you own a dog. Later on, I'm thinking, Dad, why in the world didn't you just like train her to go into a crate and like take this problem off the table? I can't tell you how many times she got into the trash. She, felt, she must have felt the shame, or I don't, who knows really what a dog feels, but she knew she had done wrong, knew she had broken the rules, knew she was in trouble, and she carried that. What John is telling us in verse 28, he says, little children, abide in him. So that when He appears, when Jesus comes back, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. John is telling us, guys, deal with sin in your life because when you don't deal with sin and when I don't deal with sin, we carry that shame on us and there is no confidence. Our Penny could run during hunting and she could run free and had so much freedom because she was obedient and trained. She had more freedom than the typical dog. But when she disobeyed in that one area, she knew she was in trouble. She knew that this was a problem, that she was not honoring the, the wishes of the alpha dog, my dad. And she shrunk back away from that. Isn't that the way we are? When you and I have sin issues in our heart and we go back to them time and again, there is a shame that we carry in that moment. There's a shame of, and that we lack confidence that we deep down know that God's favor is not on us, God's blessing is not on our life. In fact, ultimately, there's, there's judgment or there's separation that we shrink away from Him. Think about Adam and Eve when they sinned against God, that they went and hid themselves not primarily from each other, they hid themselves from God. And so the first reason that you and I need to deal with the sin in our life, even after we've surrendered with Christ, to Christ and have, have recognized our sin overall, that we need Jesus to save us, he says, be careful. Because when you allow that in your life, it will bring nothing but shame and pain in your life. And God wants us to live in confidence so that if Jesus were to come back right now, that there would be nothing in our soul that we would think that he's got to deal with right now, today. So that's the first reason. Second reason to deal with sin. The second thing that God tells us to be, to be ready is, is because habitual, we're not prepared at all, capital letters not, at all prepared for Jesus' return if there is habitual, continual sin in our life. I want you to notice what verse 29 says. John says this, if you know that he is righteous, talking about God, if you know that he is righteous, that he's perfect and good and has done nothing wrong, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I want you to notice that practices righteousness, that regularly, repeatedly, habitually does that which is good. You're going to see that regularly in this passage. In verse 4, don't, don't worry about it on the screen, but I'll read it to you. You can look in your Bible. Verse 4, he says, Everyone who practices makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Go on in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7, whoever practices keeps on doing righteousness is righteous. In verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning 
is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. What John is telling us this morning is very clear, that when you and I have a habitual habit, not just a tendency, but the overriding characteristic of our life is living a life of disobedience to God, then we're not ready for His return. In fact, we, it really shows that we have not surrendered our life to Christ. I've shared with you a couple of times that John is a writer, kind of, he goes in circles, not so much circling the airport to never land the plane, as, mu as much as like a drill, drilling down into the ground for ore. He's, he's mining, he's dealing with things in our life. Just like a dentist, if you've got a cavity, they start on the outside and that drill goes in deeper and deeper to prepare for the filling. John is drilling into our life some of these realities of our soul. And he says, look, when sin is a habitual part of your life, it demonstrates that you're not a child of God. You've not surrendered your life to Him. And if Jesus comes back, you've got a real deal problem in your life. Revelation 21 gives us a picture. There's a number of lists in Scripture to help us get our mind around these. And this is the one that came to my mind as I read this week. It won't be on your screen. But listen to this verse. This is a, this is a pretty big deal, guys. Look what he says. He says, uh, but as for the cowardly... Keep in mind, Revelation, variant times, next to last chapter of the Bible. Here's the separation of what's going on. He says, here's what's going to happen to people, what's going on who don't know Jesus. He says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Wow, that's everybody. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's unpack those words. As for the cowardly, those are the fearful. Those are those who, who live life in fear because they're not trusting God overall. Wondering about tomorrow when your character of your life is just afraid and everything you do is, to, is out of a motive of fear. Not that you're walking around you know, afraid to get out of bed, shaking, you know, knees knocking. But you even go to work just afraid of what happens if you don't have money, that your life is characterized, he says, the cowardly, those who've shrunk back, who've, who are afraid even of moving forward and stepping forward with me. They're the ones that will be separated from me. The faithless, those who live their life not trusting in God. But overall, if you look at their life, it's not one of faith, it's more of of fear, one more of anxiety. One anxiety is another form of fear. And, and we'll see in a minute, I'm not talking about if you have some anxiety. I have anxiety. Everybody has anxiety at some time or another. Everybody has fear at some time or another. Everybody sins at one time or another. But we're talking about a character of your life overall. He says, he goes on, he says, the detestable. What does that mean? He's talking about the lifestyle that comes about in us when God's not a part of our life. The things that happen, the stuff that we know and do when we're alone in a room, the stuff, the places we go on the internet, the thoughts and the things that are in our mind, a lifestyle that is separated apart from God, the detestable. Can I just tell you, I was in a motel room and I actually liked this motel, the TV, because Sometimes when you channel surf, you just end up buzzing through stuff that you just don't need to see or know or hear. And this one had, the, had all the listings. And it blows me away. I mean, like 30 channels, and I'm like, there's two that I'm even remotely interested in that even looks decent enough that I'm not going to have to get into sin. And so I, 
I, I looked at two, two shows and they were pretty brainless in the end, but the last day I kind of channel surfed and went through and it's crazy the detestable lifestyles apart from God. That's what John's talking about, detestable. The stuff that we would be embarrassed if Jesus were sitting there right beside us. The things we'd be embarrassed if, if you're married, your spouse were there. The things that you'd be embarrassed for your mom and your dad to know. That's the stuff, he says, when that is a habitual part of your life, you got problems. For murderers, Jesus said, if you've hated anyone, prejudiced in your heart, you're as good as a murderer. Sexually immoral. Anything, any sexual expression that's apart from the way God made you and that God designed you, apart from that relationship between you and your spouse for your lifetime, it says the sexually immoral. The sorcerers. Literally, it's talking about those who use drugs, but who also tend to use them for like spiritual arts, you know, like magical. I don't mean a little magician, pull a rabbit out of a hat, but those who are into mystical, spiritual stuff, who are pursuing a, a way of life apart from God, says they're in this list. Idolaters, those who put a priority on things of life other than God. It can be sports, it can be money, it can be pleasure, it can be your own success. Those are all, those are all idol, idols that we have to be careful with in our culture. And then the final one, if you didn't find yourself on the list, he says all liars. People who lie and don't even give it a second thought. Whether it's on your taxes, whether it's to your boss, oh yeah, I filed that report and you quickly go back, you know, five minutes later, done. No, tell your boss, oh, I forgot, but I'll do it right now. People whose lives are just living that lie of lack of integrity of character. What John tells us back in 1 John is those who practice that stuff, they're not ready for Jesus' return. Those who are ready practice righteousness, the opposite of all of those things. So why should we be careful with our sin and, and move our life away from Him? Because Jesus is coming back, ready or not, and He wants our bags packed and ready to go to be ready for Him. Now, when you have lived a life, a life of sin, and let's say you, you trust Christ in your 30s or 40s or 50s, even 20s, and you have had a life of a pattern of sin in an area or multiple areas of your life, it can be a challenge to break out of some of those things, some of those ruts in your life. I lived, um, my grandfather had a farm in Florida in the northern panhandle, and he, he had, uh, he was a store manager, but he had, I don't remember how many cows. He had, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 cows. I'm thinking back as a kid. Everything was bigger when you were little. Have you ever gone back to those places, and you're like, that huge hill that was a monster hill? You're like, what in the world? You know, but when you're only this tall, it looks big, but he raised Herefords. They're the, the red ones with the white faces, you know, kind of a beef cow, and and we would walk back from my grandparents' house and walk through the gate and down the field. And they had another field that was fenced off and kind of turn a corner. And we would head because they had a little fishing pond out back, you know, had one of those quintessential grandfathers you go hang out. And anyway, the cows had worn a path around the corner of that fence. And they had the dirt, you could see it, had probably, there was a little, just a little hill cut there, and the cows had worn a path probably that deep in the dirt. And my dad explained to me as a little boy, he said, son, cows are lazy, they'll take the same easiest path every time. I remember even as a little boy thinking, well, I'm going to be smart as a cow, I'm going to walk on that little path, you know. And they had just worn that, that track down. 
When you and I have sin habits and patterns in our life, those paths get worn deep into our soul. Those things connect into our brains. And it can be hard to break out of those. We'll see in a minute that yes, God changes us and makes all things new, but there's a process for most of that. So I want to encourage you this morning, if your life, before you trust and surrender your life to Jesus, that list in Revelation, 99% of that is you. And when Jesus forgives you and saves you, that you are covered, He has declared you to be righteous, but the reality is, is you've got a lot of sin patterns in your life. And what usually happens is somebody says, uh-oh, I shouldn't be doing that anymore. And you begin feeling that conviction. You begin feeling that shame. And you've got to start wrestling through that. And this morning, we don't have time to talk about how to grow through all of that. It's not really the point. But I just want to recognize for you that it's a process. Don't feel so defeated that, well, I just failed again and everything's lost. No. God's going to, you're going to take two steps forward, one back, but then take three steps forward and only one back. And eventually God changes your life and you experience that full grace operating in your soul. But to not deal with it, to let your life be continuously, the overall picture of your life is selfishness and of self-seeking and all of this stuff. If Jesus were to come back, you're not ready and you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of eternity Third thing I want you to recognize, not only should, does it remove shame and we live our life in confidence when we deal with that sin, not only does it prepare us for all of eternity, but God has shown us His love as a child. He loves us. Look what verse 1 of chapter 3 says. He says, see, or the old King James used to say, behold. In other words, highlight this. Check this out. Don't miss it. I'm saying something that's really important is what John is telling us. Look what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we, of all people, we should be called children of God. And so we are. God wants us to say, look guys, the reason you should deal with sin here in your life is because God has conferred upon us. I have conferred upon you the most incredible love imaginable, that I have called you my child. And I'm not just giving you a title to call you that. There is a reality. So you really are. You're my child. I've loved you. There is a, an abiding, perfect love that I have for you. In fact, that's what that means to, to abide in God. It means to live your life out fully in Him. It's kind of... Think the idea of abiding in God and Paul's favorite, Paul the Apostle's favorite words to describe our salvation is we're in Christ, to be in Him. My little scientific brain, maybe my kindergarten brain, you know, young kids, they, they don't deal well with abstract. They need finite, tangible things you see, taste, touch, you know, that kind of thing. But to abide in Jesus, to be in Christ, means that we live our life out in His realm, under His authority, in obedience with Him, that, that God... This isn't just something that we do religiously on a Sunday. It's something that we do 24-7 is breathing, that our prayer life becomes regular to just constantly, that we, just, we live our life in orientation with Him. And it comes out of the fact that God has adopted us and made us His child. There's no greater love that we could ever experience in our life than Him. He's made us His kid. 
Now, for some of you, and as I've talked, and increasingly so, people say, I struggle to identify with God as Father. My father was not a very good father. I can't, God had better be a better father than that. And if that's where you are, I want you to focus in and, and on that verse. If you look, the Bible makes it clear that we're the children of God. So focus on the fact that you're a child of God and focus on God's love for you more than his love for you as a father. And then I want you, if you struggle with the identity of him as your father, just to say, God, I'm struggling with that. You know my past. And just simply say, would you help me to experience that? And if you, will, if you will pray that and be sincere, the Holy Spirit in your life will begin to take you on a journey from that day forward to help you to really not only heal in the past, but to experience that love of Him as a Heavenly Father, unbelievably so, to help you to, to grasp and not just accept it, not just tolerate it, but to come to relish and enjoy that. And what comes as a result of us loving Him as Father is, is we get excited thinking about Him coming back for us. You see, in verse 2 it says, Beloved, in other words, that's who we are. We're loved ones of God. We are God's children now, not in the future, but now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, that when He appears, when Jesus comes back, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, as He really is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure. He says, look, if God is our Father, then there is an expectation and excitement and a joy in our life awaiting Jesus' return. We're looking forward to that. Just as a child should be excited when mom is gone or dad's been gone on a trip, when they walk in the door, there should be a joy and excitement in the middle of that unless they just got the most recent video game or about to unlock the next level, or, you know, there's other things that can distract them for the moment. But nonetheless, we ought to be that kid who's excited, just kind of waiting, you know, literally almost like at nighttime and wondering, the, see the lights coming down the road. Is this dad? Is this mom? Are they coming? Oh, not yet, not yet, no. Is this mom, dad? And then it keeps on going, not yet. And then finally when the turn signal comes on, and they, he's here, she's here. That's what John is talking about, to experiencing to know that love. And if we have that love that we're His child, then today part of our preparation of packing our bag is to making sure that we're living a life in purity, that there's a motivation in that to want to live purely and honorable before Him. Fourth thing you need to know. Fourth reason to deal with sin in our life, to not take it nonchalantly, to not blow it off, to not allow ourselves to get just stuck in that rut, that constant habitual sin in our life. In fact, we're told to remove it and take those things off that, that, that's, that hinders us and holds us back. But the, the fourth reason is, is, is because Jesus came to take away sin. Look what verse 4 says. Everyone, can I pause there? Does every, who does everyone include? Is that someone? Is that many? Is that most? Kids, if, I, if it says everyone, does that, how many of you kids think that means some people? Kids, how many of you think that means everybody? That includes, yeah, everybody means everybody. You guys can raise your hands. It's, it's literal. There you go. I want to keep up with Jacob and Joe. I got my eyes on you boys right there. I'm messing with you. So, Everyone, he says, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness. He's telling us that our, what we think is just our little faux pas, little sins, actually it's much worse. We're living our life in anarchy against God. Do you know how messed up this world would be without laws? I've complained about a bunch of laws as much as you have, a bunch of rules, but do you realize what kind of anarchy we would be living under without those? Without a court system to deal with them, without law enforcement officers to hold people accountable? It would be a mess. Well, guess what? God tells us when we disobey Him, it, we're living in anarchy against a holy God. And He is judge, jury, and executioner, and you don't ever get away with it. You don't. You don't get away with it. Now look what He says in verse 5. You know that He appeared. Talking about Jesus. Jesus came. He appeared, God Himself in the flesh, to take away sins. And in Him there is no sins. I want to hear from the kids, boys and girls. When is your trash day at your house? When does the trash man come? What day is it? Do you guys know? Gabe. Monday morning. Do you take the trash out on Monday or somebody else? Do you take it out or does somebody else? Do you walk it down to the curb? Okay. That day is coming. I rest assured. Chris, when's your trash day? Monday. Okay. You guys all in the same neighborhood. Interesting. Somebody else? Come on, Vinny. When's your trash day? Thursday. Go ahead, Ella. Wednesday. Monday. Ramsey's. Monday. All right. Mine's Friday. Very cool. When the trash man comes, what does he do with the trash? Or her? Him or her? What does he do? Takes it away. Right, Chris? Throws it in the truck. After it's in the truck, what happens to it? They smash it. And then what do they do? And they smash it there, and they keep getting smashed. That'd be fun to be a trash collector. You can just smash stuff all day long. Wouldn't that be an awesome job? Chris, do you ever see that trash again? It's gone. That's what this word means. It means Jesus came to take away our garbage, the junk out of our life that we don't ever want to see again and that God doesn't want to see again. The reason he doesn't want us to sin is because he came to get rid of that junk. It's awful to get rid of it. So why in the world would we want, once the trash collector is taking out our trash, why do we ever want to see it again? I've never yet ever seen anybody run out to the curb and say, wait a minute, I want that back. You know, I want all that trash back. In fact, dump everybody else's right here. We don't want it. Why would you and I, as a children of God, want to go back to that junk. That's why Jesus came and died, to pay for that. Not just to remove the guilt. Get this picture. He forgives us. He doesn't just remove the guilt. He came to remove the sin itself. He came to increasingly pull that out of our life, to take it away, to remove it. So... Why would we continue? Second word in this that Jesus came to take away. Oh, there's so much in here and we don't have time to look at all, but he says in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Point blank. If we live in Jesus and we're surrendered our life to him, we don't keep on doing this because Jesus took the trash away. He's taken it away. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. There's probably a sixth reason we could have talked about, but I don't want to be of the devil. All that sin and junk is the result of what the enemy has wants to do. He has one play in this world. It's to tempt you and me to sin. Does he make us do it? No. We let him do it. It's the same play he did with Adam and Eve. It's the same play he tried with Jesus. If he had anything better, he would have done it. I mean, he knew who Jesus was. If he had a, a, a move that was better, a better move on the chessboard, a better shake-and-bake Jesus and get him off his game so that he would have sinned, he would have played it. It's only one move. And it's to tempt you and me to disobey God because it brings such destruction in our life and the ones around us and our, our families, and it just brings nothing but death and shame and pain. And it's opposite of all that Jesus came to do. He came to take that away and he came to destroy the works of the devil. Look at this verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If we have that habitual part of our life, I don't care if it's continued lying, a lifestyle that's just wrong and awful before God, we're not born of Him at all. Actually, I got a little turned around. Let me look at verse 8. I'm getting on to my fifth point, so let me go back to verse 4, or my uh, fourth point. Whoever makes a practice of sinnings of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son appeared to us was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the phrase I was looking for in verse 8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, literally to dissolve the works. Do you get stains in your bathtub? Are they easy to get out? They're not. They are not. Jesus came to not just cover our sin. He does that positionally. He declares us to be righteous. But catch this. He increasingly in our life dissolves away those stains and removes them away from us. It's painful. That junk, that trash that gets thrown away, the reason it's so painful to us is because a lot of times we don't see it as junk and we want to hold on to it. And God says, nope, you need this out of your life. It's destructive. And we want to hold on to it. We like those stains where they are. It's like the lived-in look in our house. We want it lived in. And God says, nope, it's dishonoring to me. It's awful. It's destructive to you. And he begins to dissolve and erode away that junk in our life. Sometimes we struggle because we don't know what our life would ever be like without it. We get nervous and scared because we've lived our whole life this way. And the thought that we're losing control, that God's going to do something else, we want to hold on to that. But Jesus came to destroy that stuff, not play with it, not just cover it over, but absolutely, categorically destroy it and remove it away from us. So you and I should deal with sin. Fifth thing, and I'm done. I started to go there a minute ago and got you confused. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Here's why. You don't. Black and white. For God's seed abides in him. Notice this. Highlight this. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Folks, that is black and white. That is clear. If you and I have a life of habitual sin, we're not a child of God. 
It is categorically an impossibility. These are bright lines on the road. Have you ever driven down a road after the, it snowed and been like one of the first people there? You can't see the lines and you don't really know and you're, you meet another car, you know, and you're like, I hope I've got it right. They repaved the road, resurfaced the road by my house this fall and for a while, a few days, they didn't have the middle lane lines, they didn't have the side lane lines. And when you're driving in the country and there are no, are no lights, it's, and it's raining and it's dark, I mean, it's just like, you know, you're a little, like, where are you? He's given us two bright lines here that says, look, categorically, if your life is overall demonstrated by sin, even if it's just fear, even if it's just a faithlessness, even if it's just lying, you're not been born of God. It is an impossibility for anyone who has surrendered their life to Christ to continue in that sinful lifestyle. Why? Because when you and I surrender our life to Jesus, God plants something new inside of us. His seed. He puts a new nature inside of us. The Holy Spirit inside of us makes us a new creation, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. He makes old things passed away, that sin nature, and He puts new things inside of us, a new appetite, if you will. A number of years ago, I fasted for three days. It was a we had kind of a special emphasis of reaching out to people and just uh, God was doing some things, and I just, I just felt that I needed to do that. Didn't tell anybody then, and I'm telling you now. And, um, and so I drank, I drank water. I don't remember what I drank, maybe some other things too, but I didn't eat anything for three days. By day three, I wasn't hungry anymore. Um, I truthfully could have gone on for seven days or whatever. In fact, it was weird. You would have thought I'd been famished, like I would have been ready to like kill and eat, like, you know, give me everything. I had to jumpstart my stomach and my system, like force myself little, little things. My stomach just went dormant, I guess. I don't know the medical term for it. You know who know that can fill me in later, but I didn't have an appetite for it. That's kind of what God does when he puts his seed inside of us. See, sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to go. I don't want to become this Christian because I won't have fun anymore. And that's a legit concern until you really look around and realize that your fun is at your own expense. You're desecrating yourself. It's not nearly as much fun, and the results aren't fun at all, and it's bringing death and destruction around you. But what God actually does is, is He changes your appetite, and He gives you an appetite for Him. And it's something that He builds on it. It's not that you don't get to have fun anymore. It's that you don't want to do that anymore, and instead you want to do other stuff. It's not that you say, oh, I've got to go to church. It's like, wow, I get to go and be with and hear. I, it's not that you, well, I've got to pray. No, I get to pray. God just totally, I've got to do good stuff. No, I get to. Because what God does is He breaks that power and that bondage of sin, and He puts something new inside of us. So here's the thing. You and I have no excuses to ever sin once we're saved, once we have surrendered our life to Jesus. We're still, sin, there's no excuses, we're still sinful creatures because God doesn't obliterate the sin nature. It's still there too. That's why at times we can be almost spiritually schizophrenic. Sometimes we can be falling into sin a little bit, and other times we're like, not at all, because we're living life in the Spirit. And so that's natural. But if you don't have that inclination and that desire and that hunger to know God and to want to read His Word and to 
please Him and, and just that desire to be with Him and that righteousness in your life, then something is desperately missing. And this morning, I want to challenge you that you need to surrender your life to Jesus. It is a very clear line of when you know Jesus and when you don't. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you to think about this morning, is there a sin that God is focusing in on you right now? Is there something that He's drilling down in you saying, you need to deal with that? It's not complicated, but you need to confess it, and you need to take that next step toward Him. So I want to challenge you that if that's where you are, whatever it takes, if you pull out your phone, send yourself a text, an email, I need to do this. Write it on a piece of paper. I want you to think about your next step before God. If maybe you're struggling with that, then I want you to think about this, if that's not connecting with you. Which of these four or five reasons of why you shouldn't sin do you feel like you need to focus on? Maybe you've been forgetting just the incredible love that God has for you. In fact, maybe you know what your sin is, you've been battling it, but you haven't been focusing on that love. You can't just stop thinking about something or doing something without replacing it with something else. So maybe you need to worship God and say, God, help me to know your love. That's what I want to focus on. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've missed the fact that God has changed you and given you a new nature and desire in your heart. Maybe that's what you want to focus in on. God, help me to know and experience that. But I want to challenge each of you, wherever you are, to take that next step. So as our music team, our worship team comes up, think about what your response to this ought to be. God in heaven knows your heart. I don't. Nobody else can see into it. But which of these areas do you need to dial into? Which of these areas do you need to focus on so that when Jesus comes back, your bag is packed and you are ready to go? Which one? Pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he loves us and he died for us and He saved us. And Father, for those who have been religious and spiritual and have, have believed in You all their life, but have never really taken that step to surrender their life to You, I pray that You would help them to clearly see that line on the road where they need to surrender. I pray You'd convict them of their sin, not to make them feel bad, but to help them understand their reality and help them to take steps to know You. Lord, for those this morning struggling with sin, help them to know that they're forgiven and they are loved today. That is a permanent love never removed and that Jesus has come to destroy that. Help them to have hope in You. That's not an immediate destruction, but it's something that Jesus more and more builds in our life. Help them to take a hope and a confidence in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand and respond to Him? Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.